Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. The structure of the economy doesn't support this continued growth. These secondary markets make this private market liquid. It's telling us there's going to be a financial accident or recession. When you get in, you can get out. The biggest problems that we're facing today is the problem of inflation. It's too big to ignore. In emerging market investing, what's comfortable is really profitable. My name's Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. Welcome back. It's so nice to have you. Thanks for joining us. We have got a phenomenal podcast today. This is the second in our Due Dilly series where we bring an insurance CIO on to do a deep dive on an asset class. And today we're joined by Joe Eppers, the Executive Vice President and Chief Investment Officer of Selective Insurance Group. Joe, and a good friend and also co-chair of our symposium. Joe, thanks for being on. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Steve. It's really, really great to be here. I'm excited to do the podcast and to talk to Tom from Eagle Point. Yeah, I'm thrilled. Tom Majewski, founder, managing partner of Eagle Point Credit Management. Tom, thanks for being on. This is going to be good. I'm thrilled to have you. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks, Joe. I'm looking forward to the discussion. So, this podcast idea originally came from John Patton because I've got a good background in insurance asset management, but I'm not a subject matter expert on the various asset classes that insurers are investing in. And I haven't run money live for a number of years. And so the idea of a do dilly podcast came up where our audience could listen to kind of be privy to a conversation between a very seasoned CIO and a very senior person who's expert in the asset class. And you, Tom, are absolutely that for CLOs. And I want to talk a little bit about your about your firm in a second. But I want the audience to understand how we got here and what's going to happen. So Joe came to me and said, hey, why don't you do a podcast with Tom at Eagle Point? And I replied with, and it would be great if you would be the person. And Joe goes, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. That's for somebody else to do. And I said, okay. So I thought, well, you know, we'll figure it out. And then Joe came back and said, you know what? I will do it. And so I was so thrilled that Joe is going to do this. So if you could each give uh, just a little background on your firms, and then I'm going to turn it over to Joe and let Joe talk to Tom about the asset class. So Tom, with that, would you just give a quick overview on Eagle Point? And then we'll turn it over to Joe to let him talk about Selective. Sure. That's great. Thank you again for having me. Again, my name is Tom Majewski. I'm the founder and managing partner of Eagle Point Credit Management. Um, Eagle Point is a specialist investment manager. Uh, we manage uh, just a little less than $9 billion of investments, principally focused on what I call uh, uh, esoteric or uh, less mainstream fixed income securities. I founded the firm back in 2012. Um, and today we have about 70 to 75 employees on our team. Our main areas of focus include CLO debt and equity. CLOs are securitizations of large corporate loans to large American companies. We're also a leading provider of non-bank financing to private credit funds, something we call portfolio debt securities. And then we have a growing business in other alternative credit and, and regulatory capital transactions for banks. What we do, we look for investments that have a long track record backed by empirical data of having very low instances of loss. 
And then we look at how we can get access to those in many ways more efficiently or with some additional edge compared to other investors in the marketplace. And today of the capital we manage, it's for a diverse group of investors all around the world. Notably, the majority of our capital today comes from insurance companies. And a lot of the strategies that we manage fit very, very well in the sort of investment portfolio of a typical life or PNC insurance company. That's really helpful. Joe knows a thing or two about that genre. Joe, what, tell us a little bit about you and Selective. Sure, Stu. Thank you. So Selective, we're a mid-sized property and casualty insurance company. We're based in New Jersey, Branchville, New Jersey. Been around a long time, since 1926. Most of our business is in, focused on commercial lines. And as you said, I'm the chief investment officer. I'm responsible for overseeing the portfolio, which is about $8 billion in assets. And I've been here almost nine years now. Very good. So with that, the floor is yours, sir. Great. Thanks. Hi, Tom. Let's start with just your view of the world from the macro standpoint and kind of drilling down on your view of credit today, especially in light of credit defaults are starting to perk up, downgrades are starting to, to increase. Kind of how are you viewing the credit landscape today and how does that impact your thoughts around CLOs? Well, the, the syndicated loan market in the United States is a large and important market, uh, just shy of a trillion and a half dollars of loans outstanding. These are senior secured loans that we're talking about, first lien loans to large American companies. Uh, representative borrowers um, over the years have included Burger King or Samsonite Luggage or Transdime or Altice, large companies we do business with in many cases every single day. The loans are first lien and they're floating rate. And when we look over the long term, over the last 31 years, loans have actually had positive total returns for 28 of the last 31 years. Right now, the loan index is up over 10 points, 10% this year. So bar a surprise in the next 50 days, it looks like we'll be 32 years with 29 years of positive total return. Now, bringing it a little more current, despite being up 10%, over 10% this year, there's certainly a lot of talk of what's going on in credit. Are there problems brewing? Are there, are there things lurking that are going to get worse or could be a real, perhaps, problem for many lenders? The answer is, in my opinion, the headlines don't always reflect what's really going on. Some of the things, defaults are up year over year, starting from a level last year, of very, very low, nearly zero corporate defaults to today with rising interest rates, the default rate picking up. As of the last numbers I saw, that looks like the trailing 12 month default rate is about 1.3%. Notably, not a single company in the the Credit Suisse Leverage Loan Index defaulted in the month of September. So despite the doom and gloom a lot of people have talked about, the performance hasn't been as bad as predicted. One of the great things about the loan asset class is their floating rate. So over the past few years, if you owned an investment-grade bond portfolio or a high-yield bond portfolio, you're probably down due to rates. The ag is flat roughly this year, and loans are up double digits because of the floating rate nature. The bad news is on the other side of that, companies have to pay that floating rate of interest. And frankly, there was a lot of concern from market participants and certainly media pundits that with interest costs 
going up between 2 and 3x for many levered borrowers that they'd simply not be able to service their debt. The truth is very different than that. And what's important to remember when you're thinking about lending to a company is very different than lending to a building or an office building with fixed rents or might slightly increasing rents. Companies are living, breathing things. And even if your debt service is going up, there's a lot of different ways you can handle it. Going into the rising rates, the average company had debt service coverage probably north of four times, meaning their EBITDA versus their loan payments were 4x greater. So there was certainly some cushion. But that 4x is about an, is an average, and obviously there'll be you know, components of that average that are below. With base rates or LIBOR or SOFR now going from below 1% to over 5%, the rates that these companies have had to pay have gone up. That said, if you're starting from four times coverage on average, you've got some a good margin of safety. Further, companies, unlike a building which could be very static or real estate which could be very static, there's a lot of different things you can do. If you needed to, you could slow pay your payables. You could sell the overseas division or some non-core operation or something like that. And the reality is not a single CFO of a company is going to say, well, we're $1 short this month. Let's hand over the keys to the lender. That's just not what's happening in the world. And while most of the major investment banks predicted 3 to 6% defaults this year, Based on our current pace, it seems like the low end of that guy is still going to be two times the actual default rate. Now, that doesn't mean everything is roses. One of the other statements you hear a lot about in the loan market is most loans today are covenant light. And that, on the surface, has a very bad sound. It has two impacts, in my experience, or two ways it impacts the market. It actually makes defaults fewer in that there's no real concept of technical default anymore. As long as you pay your interest, you're fine. Right. The flip side, it gives companies more runway and more leash. Sometimes if you give folks who are in trouble a little runway, they find their way out to the other side. And a great example of that would be Weight Watchers. That was a loan a few years ago that was in a lot of trouble that ultimately paid off at par. Other examples, however, have not ended so well, where, frankly, the recoveries have been worse than they were in the past, more akin to the unsecured bond recovery rate than the first lien rate. And indeed, today we're seeing, while defaults are actually still far below the long-term average, uh, sadly, recoveries are a little below the long-term average as well for loans. So that's what's been going on lately. As we look forward, uh, one of the things that we still take a lot of comfort in is with all of the inflationary activity going on in the United States, for sure, many companies still have pricing power. A recent research report from J.P. Morgan uh, credit department said that the EBITDA margins or the profit margins at many below investment grade companies is better than they can remember in a very long time. They didn't put a year on it, but knowing these folks have some gray hair themselves, I'll take that as a pretty good measure. Another interesting fact, Citibank recently put out research that actually showed in the loan market, upgrades are exceeding downgrades, which is a surprise to many. However, I might group that in the, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. There's companies getting upgraded that are doing well, and then maybe some B3 companies getting downgraded to triple Cs. We'll talk about triple Cs perhaps in a couple of minutes. 
but there is a net positive upgrade rate right now. However, that doesn't mean there aren't downgrades. Overall, though, the state of the loan market, and this is a broad measure of corporate America for below investment grade companies, frankly, is far better, perhaps, than the headlines would suggest. So, Tom, it sounds like you're pretty optimistic on credit, despite some of the negative headlines that we all read every day. What are you worried about, if anything, when it comes to credit? Or how are you guys thinking about some of these headwinds of higher interest rates, lower debt service coverage ratios, reduced bank lending from the banks, and how that may impact how you guys think about where you take risk in CLOs? Sure. A fair number. Um, so we are, uh, I think, more constructive than, than many on credit. Um, we'll talk a little bit about how that works within a CLO shortly and some of the defenses we have in place if our opinion is, is wrong. The things we're worried about principally right now include idiosyncratic risks, where it's company-specific risks. And one company that defaulted not too long ago is a company called Envision Healthcare. And it was a fully levered LBO backed by a blue chip sponsor. And they had two different business units, each of which got adversely impacted by two different changes in regulation. And they had COVID, they had delayed billing or the surprise billing rules and a number of things went wrong. And that's a company that defaulted. It wasn't to do with interest rates going from 1% to 5%. Might make a good headline that it did. Or maybe it was too levered, but the reality is they face some unfortunate business outcomes. And that's going to happen no matter what goes on in the world. There's always changes in regulations, changes in customer sentiment. So within the loan market, the main thing I'm focused on is idiosyncratic risks, where businesses, not every business is a good business. And every year, there's always a few that go the wrong way. We also look on a macro basis, you know, beyond the, the emotional and social factors, just the economic uncertainty of two raging conflicts five to 6,000 miles away from where we're sitting today. We hope for the, the best and short resolutions in all of those to the extent that does not happen. Perhaps there's greater economic uncertainty and more challenges in the economy that we could be seeing here in the United States. Right. Probably bode poorly. The flip side, something that's really helped us lately and I'm sure many, many of the listeners today will appreciate the new prevalence of private credit funds. These used to be called middle market loan funds, but now they have a new moniker, private credit funds. Um, and indeed, many cases, they're doing loans to even larger and larger companies. One of the things that's been a real blessing for the syndicated loan market is, frankly, private credit funds are refinancing quite a few triple C rated loans in our market. Some recent names um, would include Mysis, which is a, a software company for uh, company financials, PetMed, and then even a company called Triple C Industries, how they came up with that name, clearly not someone from a credit market. But each of those three loans, which were triple C rated, were paid off at par and refinanced into the private credit markets. On the private credit funds. And obviously we wish those companies well, and we were very happy to get our triple C dollars back at a hundred where we can go reinvest them within our CLOs. So not, certainly not all roses. There's some things going on in the world. There's those always idiosyncratic factors. The flip side, there's some other new idiosyncratic factors, the large, large private credit funds, frankly, 
that are solving some of the problems that might otherwise have manifested in the syndicated loan market. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing that with the growth in the private credit market, how that's inf- impacting the broadly syndicated market? Uh, well, it's certainly a good thing in the case of those three loans. Right. So we're, very, we're very happy with that. And by and large, I think it's a very good thing. Um, while the, a recent uh, uh, Fed governor talked about 500 billion of new private credit funds coming out, that sounds like a big number, and that is a lot of money. The flip side of that private credit funds, be it traditional GPLP structures or business development companies, things that are traded on the stock exchange or public non-traded BDCs, have something very good going for them. They're steady hands right? in that they don't typically use repo financing. They don't have to worry about investor redemptions. Those are long-term private equity style funds or permanent capital funds. A. B, while many of the loans, uh, many of the sponsors of those funds will talk about their own proprietary origination, the reality is the vast majority of loans in that market are club deals where a number of large sponsors might participate in them. However, that's typically between three and five large sponsors, unlike a syndicated loan, which might have 50 or 100 different lenders. So to the extent something has to happen, it's much easier to work with a small group than a big group. Right. And then finally, those loans don't trade often. While one or two banks are starting to make quotes and be willing to trade some of the larger private credit loans, uh, perhaps to the chagrin of the private credit fund managers, by and large, everyone's starting from the same reference point. And one of the things I've observed over the years in the syndicated loan market, where the loans trade much more easily or readily, billions of dollars trade every day, if someone bought a loan at par, it gets in trouble, it's now trading at 50, someone else might buy it in the secondary market at 50. For the investor who bought it at 50, getting 75 cents on the dollar as a recovery, that's a great outcome. They just made 50% on their money. The investor who bought it at par just took a 25% loss. In private credit land, in addition to folks having a steady hand, they typically all have the same starting point. And while they might disagree on the way to work out a company if they need to, at least they're all trying to get to the, the, the results of 75 is the same impact for all of them versus a win for some and a loss for others. So while it's a big number, one of the things we really like about private credit is that it's a very steady hand in the market. And then on a more close to home level, we could give them a list of five more triple C names. We'd gladly let them refinance. <laughs> so you covered the ingredients, the loan market in terms of what's in a CLO. I think you know, very constructive on that. Maybe you can translate that into then how you're seeing relative value across the CLO stack from the triple A's all the way down to double B's in equity, which is I know where Eagle Point spends most of their time. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the CLO market. Sure. Maybe I'll talk about the very top and then we'll kind of work our way down to the bottom parts. Um, certainly the, the CLO AAA market, CLO AAAs, in my opinion, are a, a truly remarkable investment in the 25 plus years of the market. According to every rating agency data and my certain experience, every one of those bonds is paid off at par. And on a rough basis, now people might have said that about other AAA rated securities in the past. On a rough basis, these securities have typically 35% par subordination and a ton of other structural protections. 
so that even if half the loans went bad in a CLO, 50% default rate, certainly not something we're predicting, um, assuming that happened over two or three years, the structure of a CLO would still protect the CLO AAA holders, and indeed they'd be paid in full. Um, frankly, many of the largest holders of CLO AAAs own the loans in addition through separate accounts or directly on their balance sheet. So they're exposing to a few different, exposed to those same assets in a few different ways. Um, today with base rates where they are, CLO AAAs offer a 7% return opportunity. Right. That's roughly akin to most people's long-term S&P 500 capital markets assumptions. Stocks obviously can go up and down. There's risks and uncertainties in stocks. At some point, the balance, you know, while I don't think uh, folks should stop investing in equities as well, but if you really believe that 7% S&P 500 long-term assumption, we, we might have an alternative that's lower risk for folks. So we think it's a very attractive opportunity. I think you make a great point on how attractive the AAAs are and how resilient they've been through multiple credit cycles here. Insurance companies have historically not been very big investors in CLOs and AAAs in particular. Now it's been growing. The last several years, it's been growing by double digits, but it's still, call it less than 5% of invested assets across the investment landscape for insurance companies. It's for such an, an attractive asset class. Why is that? Why do you think insurance companies have been hesitant to invest in something as safe and simple as the AAA? Well, where we're seeing, um, and I don't live this every single day, but I, I maybe I'm, I'm sitting very close to it, right next to the dugout, shall we say, where we do see insurance companies most active, um, frankly, is in the single A category, which is still something that brings typically an NAIC one capital charge for a U.S. insurance company. So the incremental return investors can pick up there without any additional capital charge under current regimes. And maybe we'll talk about maybe some of the upcoming changes being considered. But at the sweet spot, frankly, for an insurance company, in my opinion, is either single A or double B, seem to be the, the two most prevalent spots. The challenge there, the size of the market, if we think broadly, the US CLO market is about a trillion dollars. Generically, the, the AAA or the single A tranche might be 10% of the capital structure, give or take. It's a $100 billion market in total. Many insurance companies have rules. I can't be more than 20% of a tranche or 20% of a deal or uh, very prudent measures just to make sure you know there's comfort in numbers investing with others. All of a sudden, for many of the largest insurance companies, it just becomes too small of a market relative to the size of capital they need to deploy. More mid-size insurers, frankly, that poses oppor presents opportunity, in my opinion, where it can be a little more nimble and a multi-billion dollar allocation could move the needle. But if you're running a $500 billion general account at one of the largest mutuals, it's nice, but it's, it's truly not going to move the needle relative to the resources you need to deploy towards it. So while CLOs are a large and important market, unfortunately, some of these tranches get a little too small for insurers. Moving down to the double B area, one of the things we've been working with a number of insurance clients on, um, so CLOs, just like the underlying loans, are floating rate assets. And we've worked with both life and P&C companies over the years where we've proposed CLO double B as a high yield replacement strategy. And certainly over the last several years, that's worked brilliantly. And even when rates were 
flat, it worked very, very well. In a world where LIBOR was, LIBOR or SOFR was between zero and 1%, we were typically able to get a, a LIBOR plus 600 to 700 type return. And this is back when high yield, which probably poorly named, was yielding 4 to 5%. So even if rates didn't move up, you were able to pick up 200 basis points of return holding the seal of double B securities versus double B high yield. Um, and then you had the benefit of floating rates. So roll forward 2022 and 2023, the number of you know high quality or double B rated high yield bonds, which I believe will pay off at par, that are trading in the 70s today is still very, very real. And that's a very real impact. CLO double Bs floated upward and were not really actually benefited from the increase in rates. So for a number of our clients who invested with us in the mid 2015, 2018 area, they benefited from higher current income while they were low rate environment. And then as rates rose, their weighted average yield or their book yield on their portfolio kept going up while other investors holding fixed rate, frankly, were losing. The reason you might pivot or overlay the next step, and then we'll talk about why you might pivot, but the, the next step in all of this, frankly, is the credit losses. Very, very few in CLO double Bs. Uh, the long-term default rate on CLO double Bs measured over 20 or 25 years is below 10 basis points per annum. And the loss given default is about 50 cents on the dollar. So when you compare that to high yield, which defaults on average between three and 4% a year, here you're able to get an asset that has a higher current yield, benefited from floating rates in a rising rate environment, and has an extremely rare instance of loss. The drawbacks, to be candid, and it's important investors understand this, CLO double B prices move around more than high yield bond prices do. Certainly in times of COVID, you'll see greater price volatility. That's a, a reality of the market, frankly, just due to the small size. And then if you are sitting here saying today, and I don't think this is your view necessarily, Joe, but if you thought we were going to have rates tightening by 200 points over the next year, you'd actually have some real appreciation on your high yield bond portfolio versus you'd have a decline in your book yield on your CLO double Bs. If that's happening, if the Fed's cutting rates that aggressively, that's probably into a credit cycle and being in high yield without the benefit of any subordination versus being in CLO double Bs where you have a thick equity class beneath you, you might still be better off in the CLO world, even in a tightening rate environment. So, you know, on that point, Insurance companies that you've talked to that are considering this hybrid approach of replacing their high yield or bank loans with double BCLOs. What are some of the other trade offs? I know the, obviously the returns have been good. The default rate is better. Talk a little bit about liquidity. You talked about price volatility, obviously being more, there's more price volatility in owning double BCLOs as an example, but talk about liquidity in that market. And then also just con the convexity profile because depending on spreads, you may own these tranches longer than maybe you think, or shorter than you think, depending on the direction of spread. So talk a little bit about the calculus one needs to think through in replacing high yield and bank loans with a CLO mandate. Sure. So to talk about liquidity, CLO double B trades hundreds of millions of dollars every single week. 
if you're looking for liquidity for because of you, maybe you have some claims to pay or there's some other event going on at the firm and it's a normal random Thursday, you'll have no problem at all accessing liquidity. And we've traded billions of dollars of CLO paper over the years. And one of the things I do very carefully, and we manage public funds that invest in CLOs in addition to money managing accounts uh, for insurance companies, we have a, a very strong compliance process around our exit price analysis. And while we all use third-party pricing services for our securities, can you sell the securities at the mark? And by and large, the answer is yes. Certainly, if the market's moving up, your sale might be up a little. Or if the market's moving down month over month, it might be down a little. But we're, it's an asset where if you need liquidity because, oh, we're repositioning the portfolio or we need to move money to an overseas division or whatever it may be, measured in the tens of millions or even low hundreds of millions of dollars, the ability to access liquidity is actually really quite easy in the CLO market. If it's the day after COVID hits and everything's shut down, liquidity is going to be challenged on that day, but not any different than the high yield bond market, frankly. Um, right. Even things that were liquid were treasuries and SPY, in my opinion, on, on those days. And then you hit on a second point of the uncertain duration in these investments. And while the, the returns are tremendous and several hundred basis points higher than high yield bonds, one of the things that, that you tackle with a CLO is the timing of repayment is uncertain. While your likelihood of repayment historically is extremely high, you don't really know exactly when. Now, along the way, you're not taking any rate risk because your rate resets every three months. So from a rate perspective, you're indifferent. However, CLOs typically are set up with a 12-year legal final maturity, but a two-year non-call period. And so one of the things that holder of CLO debt is doing is writing a little bit of a spread option. If the world turns to roses and companies have figured out how to pay all their bills and no one's worried about defaults anymore, spreads on CLOs are nearly certain to tighten. And the equity investors in CLOs might say, oh, it's a great time to refinance our CLO debt if we can refinance at a tighter spread. So you might be happy with your 700 over double B. Well, bad news, you get a notice in 20 days, you have an option to roll into a 600 over double B or just get your money back at par. Um, so you do have some higher reinvestment risk that goes along with the security. Although what I'll say is that dynamic has certainly crept into the high yield bond market. In the good old days, if it was a five or seven year high yield bond, it was non-call life or non-call 6.5, giving the company a a half a year window to refinance their debt. Um, frankly, quite a few seven or eight year high yield bonds today are non-call three. Um, so that that same risk, which is both spread based and rate based, it has certainly crept its way into the high yield market, perhaps more than investors appreciate. Right. Well, I, I do want to spend a minute or two on on your firm and the investment process and how you select CLOs. Before I go there, I don't think any conversation would be complete without talking about the elephant in the room for insurance companies, and that is the NAIC. And as you know, the NAIC has been looking at CLOs for the last year or two and considering changes to the risk-based capital treatment. And so do you have any view on that? And how, how do you see that shaking out? Um, and certainly we're, we're very much aware of it and we've helped provide data when requested, both from our clients and from different parts of the, uh, the regulatory environment regime. The short answer is, 
across the capital structure, CLO tranches have outperformed comparably rated corporate securities from a default perspective. Uh, so what that says is the ratings are right or perhaps even conservative. The flip side is if you owned a pool of loans straight up, or if you owned every tranche in a CLO, you'd get a different capital charge answer. And that's, and, the, and that's there, the sticking point. Therein lies the issue. The reality is um, what, what's missing, and this is a highly nuanced position, but it's it's true. When someone owns CLO equity, they don't, for a proper accounting for CLO equity, you wouldn't report all of your cash flow as income. You treat a portion of it as a return of capital. So while the, the math of the weighted average tranches comes out to a lower capital charge, what investors, if they're accounting, if they did do that, and I think very few have actually bought every tranche of a CLO, by virtue of treating some of the income on the equity tranche as a return of capital, they're basically using some income as a capital subordination. That said, it seems like there'll be some degree of increased capital charge for equity. At the flip side, it seems like there'll be lower capital charges at the top of the stack, um, reflecting that's that just a far superior credit expense. By and large, the messages we're hearing from insurance companies are certainly at single A and up, it's kind of indifferent to maybe even better to start buying. And then at the double B level, while there's probably a little bit of a higher capital charge with the pickup and yield you're able to get, I mean, if you own high yield bonds, you're down, if you own CLO double Bs, you're up. Doesn't matter what the capital charge is, you're probably supposed to buy the thing that's up. Right. Um, so so we, we, we see it, it certainly will have a little bit of an impact. The top of the stack, I'm not particularly focused on. It might cause a little bit lower interest from insurers at the bottom of the stack, um, certainly at the double B level. But even there, the high return, in my opinion, will likely offset the, the impact of the higher capital charge. Okay. Let's pivot to Eagle Point and your investment process. How do you guys make decisions? How do you determine relative value? And, and maybe if you could weave in an example of a recent purchase or sale of that kind of exemplifies how you guys think about this. Sure. No, we, we gladly. And this is the most fun part of our job, frankly. So CLOs, not unlike, not unlike companies, are living, breathing things. They have a five-year reinvestment period, typically, where any loan that pays off, is rein, the proceeds are reinvested. Collateral managers, which kind of are like servicers, but with a bit more discretion to just make a mortgage analogy, can also sell loans and reinvest, take those proceeds and move them into other loans. We think of a CLO really as a fixed life bank with no retained earnings. And we'll talk about that. But there's triple A's who are kind of the depositors, all thankfully all in CD format. So there's never been a run on the CLO. There has been a run on the bank. We're all aware. The mezzanine lenders and then the equity holders, the owners. And then two-legged management who go home every night. These are the collateral managers, just like the heads of banks go home every night. And then regulators in the form of rating agencies and trustees. Sounds a lot like a bank. The only thing different here is all the earnings get paid out every single quarter, which has a, has a nice feel, certainly for the equity investors. One of the things that, um, and there's about 120 active collateral managers in the United States. We view ourselves much more as a private equity investor in a fixed income market in that the securities we buy and sell trade on the mortgage key on Bloomberg. But we don't really think in 
basis points or duration. We, we obviously do the math and we, we appreciate all these things, but we're looking much more at the people and the structure and the motivations around the transactions. And even if we're buying debt in a transaction, who the equity holder is, is very important. Not unlike if you're buying debt in an LBO, is it an aggressive sponsor or a conservative sponsor? You want to know those things. Is the management team focused? Or did the manager just get a new yacht and is also sailing off over the years? So, so we're very, very focused on the management teams behind these CLOs. And I'll share with you one example of a transaction. A kind of a couple of interesting things happened all at once. The, um, one, one CLO manager, a longstanding firm, public company, tens of billions of dollars under management had a robust CLO program. The lead portfolio manager who joined the program a few years after they started quit to go somewhere else. And the market said, oh my goodness, this is terrible. They don't know how to run CLOs without this person there. The reality, they've been running CLOs for five years before this person got there and they had a deep credit bench. And the bonds started selling off very quickly. But we knew the team, while the person who left was a solid player and has continued to do well at his new firm, we started buying up that those bonds. And this was in, in early, mid-2016, if memory serves. A little bit dated, but it hits on a couple of things. So we were this is a buying opportunity, just because the market's overreacting to this one person. However, a few weeks later, some other news in an unrelated part of this company came up which had a potential trigger that we knew their deals had an esoteric provision that said if the collateral manager is removed for any reason, the reinvestment period in those CLOs ends. And in this case, we were actually buying equity when that person left because it was being given away by one or two investors who maybe put too much reliance on that one person. We had bought up a bunch of equity. But then we saw some news that said, oh, my goodness, there's a possibility these people will have to resign as collateral manager. And we knew that would end the reinvestment period. And this was buried on page 197 in the offering document. It wasn't on the cover. We have uh, one, one person at our team who has perhaps the worst job on Wall Street. His job is to read every CLO indenture, even if we're not involved in the transaction. He's also one of the most fun people at our company. But between him and all of us, we try and keep fancy ourselves to have an, an encyclopedic knowledge of these transactions. Once we heard this, oh my goodness, this could be very bad because the equity, we want that long reinvestment period. If this event were to happen in the reinvestment period, and that would significantly diminish the value of our equity. So what we quickly did, the market had kind of stabilized and people realized this one person leaving wasn't the end of the world as it often isn't. Um, and the bonds had the equity had moved back to its pre-departure prices. So we sold all that at a gain. And then we started buying debt at discounts in the same CLO with the hopes that they were removed because that would then start the CLO debt getting amortized if that happened. And the, the traders on the other side of the street were like, you know, the banks we were dealing with, what the heck are you doing? You guys just bought this a month ago. You know, you made a couple points. That's great. But now you're buying the debt very at discounts. That's very unusual. And we didn't tell them all this until it all played out. And, and thankfully, that firm didn't have to resign. So it all it all worked out well. And um, we made money on every leg of that trade. But here's a situation where knowing the teams on a deep basis, where we knew there was a strong bench around this one individual who might have been the star, but who had a good supporting cast, very good supporting cast. And then knowing the documents intimately. After we did all these trades, we told one or two of our bigger trading counterparties, 
this is what was going on. And they're like, really? That's in the docs? And you know, we're all institutional investors. I'm sure many people listening might not have read every page of a prospectus of an investment they're considering making. We know this is every page of a CLO is a heavily negotiated matter. The definition of interest rate, the definition of principal balance can be negotiated. We are deep in the weeds on those things. And that knowledge helped us make money in two different ways in this case, both on the team change and on the potential news. So um, it all worked out for the best. Um, we made money. The people who left it great. The firm you know, continues to go on. But those are the kind of things where this is very different than, you know, I'm buying Ford bonds and selling GM bonds today. It's a much more nuanced and deep knowledge uh, type investment opportunity. So, Tom, that's really helpful. I think what I get from that is it's not just as important to understand the collateral, but also understanding and have a view on the manager and, and their behaviors and their performance history, but also importantly, the structure. And I think probably a lot of folks don't really appreciate the importance of reading the docs and understanding what's in the docs in terms of the devil being in the details. You've been doing this a really long time. Can you just speak real quick to kind of lessons learned? Maybe in an instance where you've lost money or, you know, missed something in terms of how that now informs you in terms of how you think about relative value and investing today. We continue to learn new things every day. And one of the changes we've built into the CLO market, and we put this in ages ago, something that happens in CLOs are called resets. And this is an opportunity where you can Basically, the majority of the equity can direct reopening the debt, pay off all the old CLO debt and issue new debt. This goes a little bit to the, the uncertainty of repayment timing that we talked about for the CLO debt investors. But over the years, in the old days, 10 years ago, to do that, it required 100% consent of the equity. Invariably, there was some investor in a faraway location or owned in a trust or something that you couldn't get a decision. So we've changed that to just be the majority of equity can make decisions. Similarly, uh, in this goes back to the 90s and early 2000s, it used to take two thirds or 75% of the equity to even exercise a call of a CLO. And that's something that we've streamlined typically to be 51% of the equity at this point. Everyone's treated equally, but you don't need a whole, you don't need everyone to agree, just the people with the most money in the game. So that that's something that's very important. Probably three things I'd share um, is that we are continuing to evolve the documents as we as we learn things. And there were one or two CLOs we wanted to reset, but we couldn't because we couldn't find the 68th holder or something like that. The, the next thing is to focus on people and their motivations. And on one hand, when we invest with CLO collateral managers, many of them have distressed funds or other you know, deep research teams to go you know, the uh, opportunistic investor what we find is if they also have a distressed credit fund when things get ugly you want their attention on their CLOs all the people go work on that 2 and 20 money with the hopes of getting a giant performance fee not focused on the long only locked up CLOs and so looking at the motivations of people that they're focused that they're going to be doubling down on their focus on CLOs is important while we can't get favorable allocations to all the CLO managers are regulated money managers, obviously with compliance departments, 
we can get disproportionate portfolio mind share. That's something that can't be regulated. And we want to make sure our CLOs are top of mind for a PM who might have 20 CLOs, the ones we're involved in, we want to have the most focus. And then finally, when we construct our portfolios, we have a view that's off market on this. I value the reinvestment period far more than the average CLO investor. And this is the point in the first five years, typically of a CLO, where paydowns from loans, defaults, recoveries, sales can be used to buy new loans. And to frame how powerful this can be, in April of 2020, a very dark day in the world, no one knew what was going to happen. 2% of the loan market paid off at par that month. The long-term average is about 35% per year, so it was a slower month. And it was previously announced M&A, it was scheduled amortizations, whatever it may be. Just by opening the mail, you got 2% of your money back at par. Loans were trading at 80 cents on the dollar on that day. And if you had a CLO in the reinvestment period, you could just take your $100 checks and you got a 20% off coupon to go buy new loans. If you owned a CLO that was set up to be static at time zero or that had run out of its reinvestment period, those 2% dollars, you went to repay your AAAs at par. That's the last thing in the world you wanted to be doing on that day, obviously, except if you own the AAA. But for even the junior debt investors, that's so beneficial. Everyone made mistakes going into COVID. No one picked every credit perfectly envisioning a worldwide shutdown. But in the case of building more par, that helps the junior debt, that helps the equity weather those storms. And when we look at our portfolios, one of the risk metrics I look at, frankly, the first one is what's my remaining reinvestment period in my portfolio? And we're a little different than the market on that, but I think it's served us well over time. And that's something we've seen time and time again. If you're in distress, you want to be able to keep going and the CLOs allow you to do that. Great, Tom. Well, this has been a really great conversation. I think we could probably go on and on, but I'll turn it back to Stu and uh, let him wrap things up. That was amazing. I learned so much about CLOs today, and thank you both for being on. I've got one fun one for you guys to on, your, on the way out the door. And we, I've always got folks who are earlier in their careers in mind when we do these podcasts, right? Because these are very educational, and not everybody gets to sit down and spend an hour with the two of you. So to each of you, what advice would you give someone who's early in their career about how to navigate this market, where to focus, and what would you tell yourself at 25? Tom, I'll start with you. So the thing that attracted me to CLOs was all of this equity optionality in a fixed income market, in a fixed income security. Most other securitizations are static pools, autos, mortgages. The loans you get with at the beginning are what you get, and you hope for the best. Here, they, the, the loans change all the time. And that intrigued me. And what made the difference for me was focusing on something that caught my attention that seemed different than everything else. On one hand, maybe structured products 25 years ago were the oddballs. You didn't get into big M&A and all the other. I went to state school and you know, whatnot. Um, didn't have a, the fanciest degree. Maybe that was my only choice. But it was something that really interested me. And I knew it was different. And I thought there were things that could be done that people weren't doing yet. 
And maybe I was a little, little lucky on that, a little skill, a little luck, but I was right. And what I've tried to do over the last 20 plus years is help change the market. 20 years ago, there were very few majority investors. Today, it's rare not to have a majority investor in a CLO. And I think that's something we've helped pioneer at Eagle Point than I've done in my prior lives um, at, at working at banks and other firms. But it's finding something that interests you and finding something that you think you might be able to do differently. Now, it's tough at 25 to change the world, and it took me a long time to get this going. But if you find those little attractions, something that you've got an edge on, you think, follow it and pursue it as best you can. That's great advice, Tom. Joe? Yeah, I think what I would tell my younger self is, as I think back on my career, is really just the importance of relationships. And I mean, this is a great example. Tom and I have a good relationship. You and I do have a great relationship. I think when I was younger, I probably didn't appreciate the power of relationships and networking for that next job, as an example, or learning what you need to do in terms of moving your career forward and the importance of relationships, both internally in the organization you work within, but also externally. And if I think about the environment that I'm in now in terms of being a CIO and working in the insurance asset management space for over 20 years now, the relationships I've built over the last several years are just relationships I'll take with me forever. And I've learned so much from from these relationships that I think over the course of time had made have made me a better investor, had made me a better leader of people and just a better person. So I think if when I was younger, I really wish I'd have spent more time building up my network and my relationships. That's great advice, too. I really appreciate both of you being on. It was a fantastic podcast, fantastic information, really rich content. So, Tom, Joe, thanks so much. We certainly appreciate you being on. Great. Thanks for having Great. us, Stuart. Thanks so much, Joe. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks so much. We've been joined today by Joe Eppers, Executive Vice President and Chief Investment Officer at a Selective Insurance Group, and Tom Majewski, Founder and Managing Partner of Eagle Point Credit Management. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please shoot me a note at podcast at insuranceaum.com. Please rate us, like us, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My name's Stuart Foley, and this is the insuranceaum.com podcast. Thank you.